Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, producer David Davis and I highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. In this edition, we're joined by a man from Southern Oregon who is redefining how to experience the backcountry with a style of exploring known as fast packing. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. All right, in this edition, we are joined by Ryan Gelfi, the owner and operator of Wilderness Fast Packing an outfitter that takes people on a different style of backcountry adventure in a few of my favorite wilderness areas right near the border of Oregon, California. Ryan's an accomplished trail runner, having set multiple speed records on routes along Mount Shasta, Half Dome, and the Wonderland Trail around Mount Rainier. Ryan, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Okay, in this edition, Ryan and I are going to do two different things. So first, we're going to talk about this idea of fast packing what it is and why you might consider it as an alternative to classic backpacking. In the second half of the show, we're each going to pick five of our favorite destinations from the glorious wilderness areas along the Oregon and California border, the mythical state of Jefferson, including places like the Siskiyou, the Red Buttes, the Calameopsis, all kinds of great places. Sound like a plane? You ready to get going, Ryan? Yeah, let's do it. All right, so let's start off with a really simple question. So I know what hiking is. I know what backpacking is, but what exactly is fast packing? Yeah, it's a question I've gotten a lot lately, and I'm I'm sure I will for the coming years too. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not that different from either of those things. It is almost the same as backpacking in the sense that you carry everything you need to go on multiple day trips into the backcountry or the wilderness, and for the most part, it's a lot of hiking. Um, where it differs, like. I think of a traditional backpacking kit for say like a three night trip. Uh, it's going to weigh between, you know, 30 on the low end and, you know, 50 or more on the high end. So the big differentiator of fast packing is that we essentially just have to get the right kind of kit that allows you to carry, you know, my goal for a weekend trip is that everyone can carry under 20 pounds, uh, to start with, including food and water. Um, and so I guess you could say like the base weight for a lot of packs uh, should be between, you know, 10 and 14 pounds. And uh, the packs are kind of different. You know, they're usually around the 30 liters, which is a lot less than even like most ultralight packs. So they don't work if you're going to go for like a week or more on, without resupply. Like it's really good for short, shorter sort of endeavors. Um, but what's really cool is that they're the way they design the kind of the harness system is that you can run with them and it's not that annoying. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's, it's not like fast running. You're not like running up like the really, you know, big climbs or anything. Like everybody's essentially hiking up the big climbs and you can run, you know, the easier stuff, you know, some of the non super technical downhills, certainly on flat ground, you can, you know, you can kind of go twice as fast and it's not, you know, if that's what you like to do, then it's not any harder, but I will say, it's not requisite that running is involved. I think it's more about the type of gear that you bring and the type of pack that you're using. Gotcha. So, I mean, is it one simple way of looking at it as like, it's, 
essentially backpacking, except you're just going a lot farther and a lot faster and you have a lot less stuff. Is that like the, the is that like a nice one sentence way of describing it? I think so. I think to, to use the word faster, it's just all relative. It's faster than you would go if you were backpacking. <laughs> and that's, and you can cover, you know, maybe 20 to 50% more ground with the same sort of effort. Gotcha. Okay. So when I go on a backpacking trip, you know, I'm usually going to shoot for, I don't know, 10 to 15 miles per day or something like that, you know, um, and that's pretty good pace, you know, if you're carrying, you know, a 50 pound pack or something like that with fast packing. I mean, how many miles are you shooting for and, and how does it change like the fundamentals of a, of a trip? Like when I go personally, I will often cover between 25 and 35 miles in a day. Uh, and that's, that's not me trying to like race or go really hard or something. That's just like kind of an enjoyable pace. Um, I guess the other fundamentals that it sort of changes, I think people just stop less, at least the people that I've done it with. And, um, you know, you carry a lot of stuff in like pockets that are really accessible, like all over the front of the pack. It's got like, they all have like four or five pockets. So you can kind of access, you know, food, water, whatever you kind of really need. So you don't have to stop as much. But it doesn't mean that you don't like it's really whatever you want it to be. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But being able to cover that much ground, you can probably get into like places that would normally like instead of it being like a week to reach a given location, you can get there a lot quicker doing it this way, right? Okay, yeah, there's where you hit the nail on the head. Like this is this is exactly why I wanted to, or why I like doing this personally and why I thought, hey, I think other people will really like this too, because, you know, think about. Where, where I live, I live in Ashland, Oregon, and surrounding us, there are, you know, over a dozen different wilderness areas, many of which are quite large. Like, you know, if you go to the Trinity Alps, there's, you know, numerous 50 plus mile routes that are, you know, the things that I, that's what you want to do. And you can do them on a two night, three day trip in this fashion, and you don't have to be like a superhuman to do it. One of the, the trends that you're seeing generally is that people have a little bit less time, but they just want to get out there more often. So I'm, I'm curious if like you're going to have a lot of interest for people who might be a little more crunched for time and don't can't do the classic longer backpacking trip, but they still want to see that like epic, you know, mountain lake that's like way in there. That is that is exactly what I'm hoping for uh, that's why i do it i mean when i was 22 or 23 i had like limitless amounts of time and you know no kids no not a lot of responsibilities really but now i've got two kids uh multiple different jobs i guess you could say and uh so this is kind of born out of not necessity but it's just like i kind of got into this and I'm like, oh, this works. Like I can go for one or two nights and still do the route I want to do. I've seen this word fast packing like in a few corners of the internet. And I feel like it's definitely a thing people are are doing now. But can you talk about where it evolved from and whether it's something that you think could be mainstream, you know, in the next few years? I will say that I would guess it came out of the trail ultramarathon realm initially um because there's already like ultralight backpacking in you know people doing the through hikes on the pct or any other long trail like that's been around for quite some time and they certainly didn't call it i don't think they called it fast packing it might be called ultralight backpacking so yeah like all these really long routes right like there'd be these trail runners who run 100 mile races and things and then they'd start getting the wild hair to say i'm gonna go do this 200 mile route or 300 miles and you know, they might want to do it self-supported or unsupported. And so they're like, okay, how do we do that? And 
I think that it's just, this is where fast packing evolved from people's desire to go do these longer routes and to be able to run at least some of the time or to be able to move faster. So, you Mm -hmm. know, the packs are, the packs got smaller. They made them so that they are, uh, they bounce a lot less, you know, they're meant to be run with. And, and then you just kind of parse down like what, what gear do you need and, and what kind of gear can you get? Like the weights of, of a shelter can go from, you know, just over one pound to like six and sleeping bag can go from one pound to six. So it's, it's really, and having all that gear improve, uh, I think allowed this to start happening, uh, for trail runners. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. So one thing that I'm curious about is what do you lose when you go from say 50 pounds down to, to 15 pounds? Like when you're <laughs> like, like, like what, how does that change like your experience out there too? Cause you're not like, what I like about this is it's not just that you can cover more ground, which is cool, but you also get to enjoy different areas. So you want to have some time to enjoy it. So like, wh- what do you, what do you lose in there? And why do you, how do you try to make it up in that, in the equipment and gear side? Right. Uh, well, I'll just, I'll preface this with, I mean, so like I'm 32 right now when I was 17, I did a Knowles course, right? National outdoor leadership school. That's been around for a long time. And so the course I did was a month long backpacking trip in the wind river range uh in wyoming and so Knowles is at least at that time and probably still they're not known for lightweight packs (laughs) like you do 10 days at a time and heck we carry like a cast iron skillet that weighed five pounds so like the packs were 70 or 80 pounds uh which honest to god i I don't mind carrying that kind of pack it's not like it just this un you know impossible burden but i didn't like that we would only go you know, four or five miles a day. That was kind of a, like revelatory. I was like, oh, because I, I ran at the time, you know, I ran cross country and, you know, I liked covering ground. So anyway, so that I think that kind of was an awesome experience, but it definitely pushed me towards, hey, I'm going to get rid. I'm not going to bring this heavy stuff. So <laughs> you're not going to bring a cast iron uh, iron skillet with you. Wow. Right. So your meals, right. You're not going to do like a, you're not going to cook a pizza or a cake for someone's birthday. Right. That's where I'm coming from. Like why I've got pushed this direction. And so for like to do one of these 15 pound packs, like I think the first caveat is that you can't do more than like three or four days without the pack weight starting to go up. Right. Cause it's about, you know, one and a half to two pounds of food per day per person is like, I don't know. Those are like the ballpark numbers I use. So like, that's a huge input. So if you do a few days, the food is, you know, four five or six pounds. And then, you know, we don't leave anything. I think that's the revelatory part for me was that like, you can get a 30 degree sleeping bag or quilt that weighs under 16 ounces. Uh, and you can get a shelter like on a per person basis, it's under a pound. So you don't even have to do cowboy style. Like you can have, you know, protection from rain and bugs. Uh, you know, the sleeping pad weighs, you know, 10 ounces and the stove weighs two and a half ounces. So like you're bringing all the key pieces. You're not like roughing it. You just get the light ones, <laughs> the really light ones that like, it might cost a little bit more, but not, it's not crazy. Um, and you, yeah, you don't bring like three pairs of clothes. Uh, I'm trying to think what you leave. I don't, I don't think we leave any of the key pieces. We just are really intentional about what kind of gear we bring for each sort of piece. Gotcha. That's really that, that's really interesting. So it, you're not actually losing, from your perspective, you're, you're not losing that much. You, you might be losing a giant iron skillet, <laughs> but 
but beyond that, like it's not that much different from a, a, a normal backpacking trip. You're just thinking about it more and maybe you have some better equipment. Right. It's, you probably have a little better equipment and yeah, like you, you, you definitely pare down anything that might be superfluous. Like I won't bring extra shirts. Like I'll bring one shirt cause it's a weekend and I don't need more than one shirt, you know? Um, and I will say this too, like if you live in a really harsh climate, right? Somewhere that it's going to have thunders. Like if you're in Colorado at 12,000 feet, like that 15 pounds is probably going to go up to 20 or 22. Like it, it's going to be more if you have to deal with like harsher weather. But in Northern California and Southern Oregon in the summer weather, aside from potential smoke, right? Like that's the only bad thing, but it's, it's pretty mild. Oh yeah. It's about as good as it gets, you know, given all the way down to Grants Pass's motto is it's the climate. So, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm curious about um, the idea of like how popular this can become because, you know, more and more people are getting out. They're thinking about things differently. Do you think fast packing will become more mainstream or that people will start going that way if they if they haven't already? Well, of course, I'm going to say yes, because not I mean, I, of course, I have this business that we're <laughs> that we're starting, you know, offering people offering to take people on these trips. Um but I, I just, I don't see why not. Like when I think about it and I'm like, wow, why would I carry, you know, this 30 or 40 pound pack or would I just do it the way this fast packing style and carry 15 or 20? For me, there's no question. Like I know what I will do every single time if it's a personal trip. Um, mm -hmm. And it's not that I always have done that. It's like, I've learned that and I've gone, huh, then this seems, this is a lot more fun. And yeah, you cover more ground. Your shoulders aren't you know, necessarily is beat up afterwards. And uh, I, I just, I think in the sense that backpacking is mainstream, you know, on whatever level that is, people that go out into the wilderness for multiple days at a time, then I think this has, uh, this could have legs too. Fast packing should be something people want to at least try. So one of the thing, one of the pushbacks that I get, like from from my dad, for example, you know, because I've I've written about people who set records mm. and are doing these things, you know, very fast. And his his pushback is always, you know, are they really enjoying the experience, or uh -huh. you know, are they able to take time to smell the flowers, for example, and you know, look at the mountain vistas? I mean, do you miss anything by running more often than than just walking and taking your time? Well, I think. It really just depends. Like you, they don't, there's nothing about fast packing that says you have to go blitz the trail and <laughs> not look around and not stop and jump in lakes. And like, it, there's, it's completely up to the individual. Like if, if what they're looking for is purely to go, I'm going to do this as fast as I can, or they could do it the same exact way someone backpacking might just with less stuff. So uh, I think you, I mean, you probably do miss, I mean, I've done a lot of running in these kinds of, you know, big wilderness areas, you know, single day or multiple day. And, uh, you definitely miss stuff. Like if you, you don't get to stop and jump in that lake, if you're trying to set some sort of speed record. So I, I would never say I'm only going to do that. Like I love the slower, you know, a slower paced endeavor where I can stop as much as I want. There's no sort of like clock going, but I also like the fast ones too. So, um, I, I think you might miss something if you only ever were going for records or trying to go really fast. Um, but you don't have to do that all the yeah, time. That makes sense. So 
I wanted to talk about your business a little bit because I was I was really intrigued when you announced it. And I was like, OK, so he's going to, you know, do this as, you know, guided outfitting mm -hmm. experience, um, you know, down in places like the Marble Mountains, the Trinity Alps. So what led you to think that this could be a business, that it could be a viable business compared to, you know, um, regular backpacking trips? So what kinds of people do you think are going to be interested in fast packing over, you know, guided backpacking right um well so like when i when i was younger i did a fair amount of guiding like on mount shasta mountaineering type trips i did uh backcountry ski guiding in a couple different places i uh, but i always wanted to have a guide service of some sort like taking people on really unique trips so in the last couple of years this just kind of light bulb this fast packing light bulb went off in my head i thought this is really what i think i can add and where i don't see a lot of people necessarily having done it. So I think the people who initially will come with us will probably come from like the trail running realm more often than not, partially just because that's like my marketing reach probably is better uh, suited towards the trail running audience. But I don't intend for that to be who this is only for. Like I describe quite clearly, I'm like, you don't have to run to do the trips. We're not doing 30 miles a day where you have to be going fast enough that running is required. Um, so I'm hoping that it'll be a cross-section of people who are maybe trail runners and have literally never been backpacking, which is actually quite a few of the people I think who have signed up so far, but also people who have backpacked a lot and say, hey, this sounds really cool and I don't have all this gear and I'd like to try it. So, you know, a big part of what we're offering is that we're going to have like the big pieces of gear that people need, like we're, we're going to have that stuff and buy it and, you know, kind of curate what we buy so that people don't have to figure it out. They can come on a trip with us and see if they like it and see how it really works. And uh, it's, it's a good way to like dip their toes in without having to go, you know, hundred percent and buy their whole kit. Makes sense. Gotcha. So take me through one of your trips. Like what's involved? Um, how many days are, are you doing? Um, how many miles you're going? What do you provide? So, so bring me through, you know, an example for one of these trips that you're going to offer. Right. So at this point, like we don't provide transportation, like every, all the guests will meet at the trailhead. So there's a lot of, there'll be a lot of communication pre-trip with like gear list. Like I'm talking to people on the phone, trying to help them understand like <laughs> what's happening. And so we'll all arrive at a trailhead, uh, in the morning and we'll go through like the whole gear packing setup, right? Like everyone will pull out what they have, like their clothes, whenever their accoutrement, their accessories and stuff. And then, you know, we'll pop, you know, so we're going to provide sleeping bags, pads, shelter, all the cooking, all the cooking setup, uh, we're going to let people rent packs from us and anyway, because I think people, it'd be nice if people kind of had a pack or got one because they're not terribly expensive and it's nice to have used a pack before you go on a multiple day trip, but we'll have those and we'll use trekking, like we will encourage trekking poles too, because I think it helps a lot. And then, yeah, at the trailhead, we'll like go through everything, pack it together, because I think a lot of people who come might not have all packed it, you know, an overnight pack and figuring out how to use the space best and, uh, and then hopefully we'll get rid of some stuff that they brought that they don't really need. <laughs> and everyone's packs will hopefully be starting out around 20 pounds. And then, you know, each day on the trail, and it depends a lot on the climbs, right? Like some of our, you know, Trinity Alps itinerary, there's two, 3000 foot climbs kind of repetitively. So we might, we're, we're going to do between 10 and say 18 miles a day 
and it, it'll depend a little bit on the group, right? Because everyone, all these groups will be different. So I do pretty fully thought, you know, worked up intake where I'm like trying to actually get to know each guest that comes with us so I can piece together. I'm like, okay, what route should we actually do? Because <laughs> uh, it's going to, it will depend on who comes. And then, yeah, so we, we'll, we'll move, you know, most of the day, but we'll regroup and we'll stop at lakes. We'll stop at viewpoints and, you know, hopefully get to camp in the early evening, late afternoon, and then we'll cook. So like the dinners we're going to cook, uh, we'll be, I guess you could say from scratch, like we're not going to hand people backpackers pantries partially because I just, I don't think that's the way to do it personally. I don't think they taste as good. So we'll have like the dinners prepped and like, you know, in bags ready to cook. And there'll be pretty simple one pot meals, but stuff that ultimately, I mean, I think they're really good. Like I'll eat them at home. Uh, but so we're not going to cook in like one giant pot for the whole group of up to 10 people. That's our maximum size is two guides and eight guests. Uh, I imagine most of the trips would be a little smaller than that. But uh, so we'll cook in groups of two or three, which is like what you can actually do with a one liter or like a 1.3 liter titanium pot, which is what we'll use. So we'll cook together and it'll be someone, something where people can learn how to do it. Like our goal isn't just to purely pamper people. I mean, we're there to you know, be very helpful, but we want people to gain actual skills where they could maybe go do this, uh, you know, the next month if they wanted. So I'm, I'm curious about the meals because one of the thing, whenever I think about guided trips, I think about the <laughs> rogue river trips where they cook these really exotic meals for right. guests and stuff like that. What kind of meals are, are we talking about? So give me, give me some of the stuff that's on the menu. Yeah. So like, uh, I mean, one of the pretty good ones, like my wife's a pretty good cook. I'm, I wouldn't say that I am, but she can come up with recipes that are quite good. So like, uh, you use like noodles, right? Just like regular, even like just ramen noodles, but then we'll make like, you know, these different Asian sauces for it and bring like all the, lots of different, uh, sides, right? Like, you know, whether it's raisins and cashews, like stuff that's really weight fit. Like we try to bring more fat, you know, than carb, like you bring a lot of things that have high fat content because, calorie to weight ratio is a lot better in terms of how much you have to carry for the energy. There's a polenta one that's pretty good. I mean, basically add as much, add a lot of fat, things like cheese, bacon, <laughs> oil, butter, even, I mean, depending on what people can eat, but yeah, it'll uh, be built that way as opposed to like just buying prepackaged stuff or a lot. And it'll be, there will be carbohydrate, but less. Cool. Gotcha. Okay. So, you know, you've gotten to the trailhead, you're, you're covering, you know, 10 to 18 miles for, for, for the day. Um, you know, you may camp and stuff like that. And so most of your trips are, so take me a little bit farther. It's going to be two to three days typically. So you're going to be covering about that, that, um, that amount every day and just mm -hmm. really getting back in there and then getting back out. Yeah. So, I mean, I, the itineraries that I've created as much as possible that's like their loops right so we are starting and ending at the same trailhead like in the future when i want to buy more expensive insurance and start getting into vans and doing like point to point type itineraries like i those will be really fun uh, initially i was like that's more than we're going to bite off uh on the first year so they will be as loopy as possible right like not repetitive um and yeah I, they're going to be between 40 and 55 miles like the most of the trips will be two nights. I, I have a three night offered um, so that I, I, I kind of build that like that you can cover that same loop and people, you don't have to be quite as fast. Like you're just going to have more time to, to get through. Cause like ultimately most of these loops, that's about how long they are. Like it's, you can't go 
in there. You can't just do 20 because it is like 10 or 15 miles from like these Western trailheads to get like all the way into some of these places. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right. So what else should, uh, should people know about fast packing or your business? I mean, I'm just being honest. Like the, the thing that drew me to it was this idea that you could get to more interesting places in a shorter amount of time. I feel like that's like, that's the big thing here, huh? I know it is. I know it is for me personally. I think the other thing is, at least with people I've talked with, I think people who don't come from a backpacking sort of background, I think the idea of carrying 50 pounds on their back is off-putting. Uh, it's not something everybody can, wants to do or maybe even can, right? Like, So I think that that's a huge piece of it. Um, but I will say that I think the word is pretty, I, I debated a lot about what should we really call this business? <laughs> and it is like fast packing is what it's called. Like that's what, you know, it's kind of, it's gotten enough of traction. Like I'm not going to make up a new name myself. Um, but it really is a misnomer in that it has nothing to do with going old, you know, quote unquote fast. It should just be called faster packing. <laughs> it's faster than you would go if you're backpacking or maybe just farther. And like you're saying, like, you know, you know, being able to go from like, and maybe your listeners haven't all heard of these places, but from like the Western edge of the Trinity Alps on one of like the Swift Creek trailhead, for instance, and be able to go all the way into the Caribou Basin up and over through the Four Lakes loop on the way and, and make it back and literally do that from Friday to Sunday. It's like, it's not something very many people could do without this style. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back in the second half, uh, Ryan and I are going to pick our favorite places in that enchanted land known as the state of Jefferson, including probably a few places that he is going to have his business going to. So that's coming up when we return. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water. And it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. In the second half, Ryan and I are going to pick five of our favorite backcountry spots in the wilderness areas of Southwest Oregon and Northern California. Now, if you've never been down to this magic land, you are missing out. The Klamath-Siskiyou Mountains are an amazing place of clear rivers, unique geology, and just these waves of green mountains that seem to go on forever. It's the place where I got my start in outdoor journalism, and I still dream about it every night. But Ryan, what do you love most about this area? And why did you pick it to start this fast packing business? Like, why is this the best destination for it? Uh, well, so I grew up in Redding, California, which is like, I guess you could say on the southern edge of like the klamath Siskiyou region. And I live in Ashland, Oregon now, which is two hours to the north, right in the heart of this klamath Siskiyou region. So, I mean, one really good reason is that I would consider myself fairly well expert in all the wilderness areas of this region and 
I'm not, I don't have to travel 12 hours to go <laughs> do our trips. Like I, I can recon these trips. I can know everything about them. And why should anyone come here is an interesting question. You could say, why don't just go to the Sierra Nevada? Like they're amazing. It's sunny and there's all this granite. And I think that for two reasons, this uh, area is amazing. It's one, it's more prim. It's more remote. It's more primitive. There's certainly less people overall. So if you want to have like a really amazing wilderness experience, I mean, there's no better place than the Klamath Siskiyou region, at least on the west coast of America. It's it's uh, it is tremendous. And then like they're just amazingly jagged, rough mountains with everything you'd want, like clear high mountain lakes, like you're saying, amazingly clear water quality and all of like the rivers coming out of the Klamath Mountains. Um, and there's just hundreds and hundreds of miles of trail. It's endless. Like uh, the routes we'll do with my trips are like just touching the tip of the iceberg of what you can do down here. I think that's my favorite thing about this area too, is just that rugged remote feeling. Like I know that a lot of places in the Pacific Northwest and the West Coast like to claim Bigfoot, but I feel like <laughs> Like if Bigfoot does walk the earth, like this is this is where he's hanging out because you can actually hide out there. Like you can really get away from people in a way that I don't think you can. in like you were saying, the Sierras or up here, like in, you know, the Cascade Range, the Three mm -hmm. Sisters, Mount Jefferson. I mean, those areas are so crowded now that you need this, you know, pretty exotic permit system to get anywhere anymore. But, you know, head down to this area and, you know, you can get away from people in a really really good way so okay so the plan is that each of us are going to pick five of our favorite backcountry spots in these wilderness areas um so i'm going to get us started um i'm going to pick a place that's special to me so my first pick is going to be raspberry lake and preston peak and that is in the siskiyou wilderness this is reached just south of Cave Junction and right off Redwood Highway 199. It's pretty darn close to being on the border of the two states. So Raspberry Lake is the place that made me fall in love with the Klamath Siskiyou Mountains. It's this little turquoise pool wrapped in steep, steep silver mountains. It's about six miles into the backcountry with some pretty good rainbow and brook trout, trout fishing. So the fishing's pretty good there. Um, I actually invented a sport called log rolling fishing there where you go out on a log and try to catch a trout. There's a video of me doing this. Anyway, so as much fun as, as it is to camp at the lake, it's even more fun to scramble up the mountains and then make your way up to Preston Peak, um, which is 7,300 feet tall. It's the second tallest mountain in the Siskiyou Range behind just Mount Ashland. But Preston Peak just feels so much bigger um, because it's you know way above everything else around it. It's real remote and way back there. And from the top, you can see everything. Like you can just see this huge expanse. You can see all the way out to the ocean. Um, and so the combination of those two places, like the little mountain lake and then this great mountain climb, you know, that isn't, it's not technical, but you know, it's just off trail scrambling. Uh, yeah, Siskiyou Wilderness, Raspberry Lake, Preston Peak. Those are uh, pretty special places for me. Uh, have you been to either one of those? Yeah, oh, definitely. I, uh, I did a quick little one night fast pack trip in the Siskiyou. Uh, anyway, I guess I've been there a few times. I, I was going to do Preston. Like I got into raspberry kind of came from an off trail route and I was, I just ran out of time. I looked up and I was like, ah, oh, there's no way I'm getting back in time if I go up Preston. So that's like one of my, I wouldn't say regret. It's one of the things on my short list for sure, because Preston's like the most compelling peak in all of the Siskiyou range. No doubt about it. it has the most relief. It's unbelievably steep. It holds snow 
super late into the year on its big north face. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> One cool thing about Preston Peak, and I learned this when I was a, a journalist down there, is that it's actually still being uplifted. So it mm. actually rises like a few centimeters per year or something like that, because the geology of that area, the tectonic plates are still pushing it upward. So you can say that like you can come back every year and say you've climbed it slightly <laughs> taller than it was before. So. Anyway, uh, what's uh, what's your first pick? All right, so I'll do for my first pick. I'll pick the Caribou Lakes Basin, which is in the Central Trinity Alps Wilderness. It's like the Trinity Alps are kind of a little further south into California, um, quite close to like Weaverville, or yeah, Weaverville is like your jump off point from the south. Anyhow, um, yeah. So the Caribou Lakes are it's probably the most popular place I'll talk about. It is fairly popular, but you have to take an hour drive up mostly dirt road to get to the traditional trailhead up at a place called Big Flat. And then the climb up to the lakes themselves, it's about a 3,000 foot climb. Uh, there's two different trails. There's an old caribou trail and a new one. The new one's more graded and has more switchbacks. The old one is amazing. Like you go straight from 5,000 feet up to 8,000 feet up on the shoulder uh, with like unadulterated views into the interior of the Trinity Alps. And then you look down into this caribou basin where the lakes, like the biggest of them is quite large. I would say it's got to be at least three quarters of a mile across and just the best color of blue I've ever seen, you know, like, eh, I don't know, it's the kind of place dreams are made of. And yeah. so yeah, it's about 10 miles, give or take, to get into the lakes from the, the closest trailhead. So it's, it's a good, it's not close, um, but it is popular, like for the reason that it is just so stunning. Yeah, that's the the one place that I, I got to before before I left uh, living down there. Um, that was the the one lake that I made it into. And you're not kidding, man! Like the color and the the contrast to the color of the mountains, like yes. it just it pops. Like if you take a picture of it, it just like pops off the screen because it's like the silver mountains and this like very turquoise like beautiful water um man it's it's really something yeah you don't have to be a good photographer to get good pictures at that place <laughs> cool all right well i'm gonna jump into my second pick and my second pick is in the red buttes wilderness and is azalea lake and this just encapsulates this idea of combining oregon and california because the cool thing is that you actually start on the Oregon side of the border and then you cross into California on the trail and make your way to this across this sweeping valley called Phantom Meadows over a big ridge line and then down to Azalea Lake, which in California, you start in Oregon. There's some halfway decent fishing at Azalea Lake, although it's it's kind of shallow. Um, I have two goofy stories about this place. When I was young and stupid, I, I hauled a pretty large inflatable kayak like all the way into the <laughs> lake so that I could fish from it and that that worked only moderately well it definitely was not worth the pain um, of climbing you know about 2,000 feet I think of elevation climb then mm -hmm. six miles um, and then the second was that like it once you get to Azalea Lake it's a cool place to backpack um, very nice um, there's another lake nearby called Lonesome Lake and on my way to Lonesome Lake about 10 years ago, wasn't paying super close attention. The trails weren't in great shape at that point. And I got pretty seriously lost for about 35 minutes, um, you know, deep in the Red Buttes wilderness. There's just nobody out there. I was by myself. Um, I was just like, oh, man, like if they have to send out search and rescue, like my career as an outdoor journalist is like <laughs> just finished. Um, but yeah, it was about as lost as I've, I've ever been. But 
eventually used the compass to find my way north and, and connected with one of the trails. But uh, anyway, if you want to get lost, uh, the Red Buttes is a pretty good place to do it. And Azalea is a great lake to get started. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I love that piece of country too. It's uh, The trails are a little better now, I think, than they were 10 years ago, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. And there's different ways to get in there. Have you ever been down into Phantom Meadows? It's always looked like a cool place to explore in the bottom, but the, the trail always takes you like right across the top. Uh, I don't think I have. This would be like to the west, I'm thinking, of Azalea. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just, yeah, it is to the west. It's just that big meadow that mm. you go across. It's no. got this huge, like, glacial, like, valley in there. Yeah. I've always thought it'd be fun to get down in there. I've always come in from the other side to Azalea, like along the Boundary Trail. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's amazing country. Definitely seen fires, but even you know, people will say, "Oh, it burned." I'm not going to go back there. But I'll tell you, the fires have not ruined that place uh, at all. I think it's it's still just as aesthetic as ever. Yeah, that's one thing I got to remember when I talk about this. I wrote a, a guidebook about hiking in this area, but it was like over 10 years ago now. And so some of my some of my information feels a little bit out of date, so it might not look exactly the way it does now. Anyway, well, let's uh, let's move on to your second pick. What you got? All right. So I try to pick some places that maybe not everybody has heard of or been. And I mean, maybe people probably heard of this, but I'm going to pick the Chetco River within the Calmeopsis Wilderness. It's not really a point, but it is... Uh, so if you haven't been to the Calmeopsis, you're probably not alone. It's not super well-traveled. It's to the west of like Cave Junction in Selma, so like southwest Oregon. And it's quite a large wilderness. It's 180,000 acres, uh, and it's been really ravaged by fire, worse than anywhere else I've ever been in my life. <laughs> the fires have been really devastating. And, you know, it used to have big stands of old growth, and now there's just tiny little pockets left, and the rest is quite burned. Um, but when you go down into the Chetco, it takes, uh, the short way is maybe four or five miles. And then there's another, another trail that's more like 10, depending on which way you want to go. Um, so you, you start out quite high, like up on the ridge line around four or four and a half thousand feet. And then the trails drop way down into the drainage, which is like just over a thousand. So it's pretty big, rugged drop, you know, tough trails, but, um, the color of the water in the Chetco, I think that was, it was, just one of the most mind blowing things to be in this unbelievably scarred and burned landscape. And then to see the most opalescent blue, uh, just untamed river that I've ever been to. And, you know, it's fully encompassed within the wilderness boundary. So there's not like current, you know, logging operations or mines or any sort of uh, human impact within like its entirety in, in the upper reaches of the Chetco. So it's, uh, it's a river that you have to go to at least once in your life. I think if you're, if you love that kind of thing. Yeah, I feel like the Chetco might be like if you were going to pick the most remote river in the western United States, like the Chetco would have a pretty strong case just based on like how far it is out there and like everything you have to do to get down to that upper Chetco River. Um, man, that's uh, yes. And, and when you're in there, like you're you're in there, like you are in raw, remote wilderness. Um, I know a lot of a handful of people, not a lot of people will actually bring boats down and uh, float that upper area. And you go through a canyon called like the Magic Canyon. And, you know, it's it's about as good as good as it gets. I'd like to do that. I, I mean, I need to buy a pack raft before too long. I, yeah, being being able to paddle that river would be a, a dream. And I should probably mention, um, he'll kill us if we don't mention it um, at this point, but uh, the Siskiyou Mountain Club, which I know that you're involved with, um, has, has been instrumental in maintaining the trails in the Calumniopsis because 
you know, not only were they hammered by the biscuit fire back in 2002, but the Chetco bar in 2017 mm -hmm. and the Klondike, like these trails would have disappeared without the work of our buddy Gabe Howe and the Siskiyou Mountain Club. So important to give them a shout out <laughs> big time i think i think it's not that they would have disappeared i think it's that they basically had disappeared uh, yeah <laughs> it's it's tremendous yeah I, it's one of my greatest uh the greatest things i'm involved with is being able to just be a small part of like making it so people can get back in there at now right like it's we haven't lost it so i, I think it's tr tremendous yeah and i mean you know if you if you live up in northwest oregon and you want to like really get off the beaten path but still be rewarded with some cool stuff you know the calmiopsis it's about as rugged as it gets out there yes and you don't need a permit <laughs> you don't need, definitely don't need a permit um all right so uh my third pick here i'm gonna pick the sky high lakes and the marble rim in the martin in the marble mountain wilderness and for me this is the real centerpiece of of the klamath siskiyou this is like the showstopper wilderness of this area that just brings everything that's amazing about the Klamath Siskiyou kind of into one place. You know, there's alpine lakes, wildflower meadows, really rare species of trees and very biodiverse area. It just has all the things that you can love and was actually one of the original wilderness areas protected in 1964. The places I'm picking are fairly obvious and they're kind of the more famous of the area, the Sky High Lakes, and then Marble Mountain itself, which is sometimes called Marble Rim. But it just, the, the Marble Rim has this amazing pearl white crown of a mountain that just sits atop this kind of lush wilderness. And the amazing thing about the Marble Mountains is the geology. So it's millions of years ago, this was a shallow ocean and then volcanic upheaval brought it up and formed these mountains. But you'll actually see like, um, fossils of ancient like sea creatures like at the tops of mountains which is really bizarre and again it's just pretty cool the sky high lakes themselves are just our cool collection of alpine lakes below craggy mountains um i suspect again that this area has gotten a lot more crowded since my time um since this is kind of an obvious destination but you know go in there midweek and then explore the whole area like the marble rim and yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I assume you've been to the marble the marbles quite a bit. Yeah, it is. It's pretty close to where I live right now up on like Siskiyou Summit. And to get to that trailhead, it takes me like an hour and 15 minutes maybe. Uh that yeah, the marble rim is tremendous. And uh you know the the marble mountains in their entirety. It's like it's another one of these places where you could do, you know, if the trails are in decent shape, which they aren't all, but you know, you can do a 100-mile loop without even trying to make it up like it's just it's huge it's three hundred thousand acres almost and uh has more lakes even than the trinity i'm trinity ops are well known for all its lakes but the marbles actually have more so i'm curious about you like have have the marbles become because when i went there like they were known but they mm -hmm. weren't that well known like you were alone a lot of the time and you'd see a few other backpackers but it wasn't that crowded has it has that area seen a big uptick in use like you've seen in other places i would imagine that it has seen a big uptick on a percentage basis i would still say that you know every time i go there it it still very much feels like a wilderness experience and certainly nothing like a theme park and there's people but i i don't think it's it, it doesn't take away from the experience at this point although you know in the future you know like all these places that these really amazing places they're gonna eventually have to limit how many people can go there and have permit systems and stuff and i think we're still quite a number of years out from that uh yep. down here gotcha well that's that's good to hear um all right so what do you got for your third pick? all right so 
I, it's so hard to pick five. You're like, pick five. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be tough. So <laughs> I try, I'm picking again, places I think that I think are just tremendous that maybe people haven't been. So this one is called the, uh, the boundary trail in the Southern Siskiyou wilderness. So the Siskiyou wilderness, which you talked about Preston and, and Raspberry Lake, which are on the farther North end of the Siskiyou wilderness. Um, so what's cool about the Siskiyou wilderness is it's about 50 miles end to end, uh, uninterrupted wilderness, you know, no roads. Um, so it's quite large. It's 180,000 acres. And on the very Southern end, it's seen very, very little people, uh, hiking very few, very few backpackers. Mostly the trails have not been great and they have improved recently. Thanks to our friend Gabe and many, many others. But, um, the Southern boundary trail, it's, yeah, you know, it, it's just a piece of trail. It's all on high ridges between you know, 45 and 5,500 feet, you can see to the ocean and it's quite close to that coast actually. Um, and it's just unbelievably rugged and you get the, that feeling of vastness is just overwhelming on, on that trail. And it's, it's super primitive. It's not like this is a buttery groom trail. Like you still have to kind of look for Karens and it's not all, uh, yeah, it, 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 it you, it's very much a trail, but it, it's not, um, it, it doesn't feel like this place has been used very much. And uh, I had the privilege of taking like this group of maybe seven or eight people. And we did a trans Siskiyou run. This was a one day run where we got van supported and got dropped off in the North end and went all the way to the to basically clear to the South end. And this boundary trail was the last stretch. And, uh, you know, it's like, I'm like, oh, 10 miles. That part was only 10 miles. I was doing all the math. I'm like, this should work out. <laughs> and it turns out, you know, uh, it was very, very hard trail. And the last people finished around one in the morning, all in high spirits. <laughs> they were actually all really psyched about it, but, uh, it's a super tough trail. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved what you mentioned about, you know, still needing to look for like Karens and stuff like that. Cause that, that brings me back to my time exploring this part of, uh, these wilderness trails. Some of them, they're so hard to see and you can just get lost. Like if you miss like a few markers or like the trail just disappear on you. So they but man, you feel like you're out there. The boundary trail is, is a very cool one. Um, all right. So for my fourth pick, um, I am going to head to the Calmeopsis wilderness and I had trouble picking one. I was going to go with Vulcan Lake, which I thought about for a little bit, which is this amazing Alpine lake that really feels like you're on a on a different planet. It's just this burnt orange rock and then this bright turquoise lake. But it's also a really short, pretty easy place to get to. So I think my official pick has to be the Illinois River Trail. And this is, you know, a 28 mile, very rugged route that ostensibly follows the Illinois River, which is one of the wildest rivers on the West Coast, but the trail goes all over the place, like high up very, very high mountains and then down. And in a few places you get along the, the river uh, at a place called Pine Flat, which is one of my favorite places to just backpack into for like, you know, one night and, and really feel like you're getting out there. Um, there's, you know, places you can swim or you can fish for uh, winter steelhead and stuff like that. But yeah, the Illinois River Trail, it just brings you up mountains and then back down and past like amazing tributaries like the Indigo uh, Creek and Silver Creek. There's just an amazing array of things to see on the Illinois River Trail. It makes a great backpacking trip. The thing that's probably most famous for is rare wildflowers. So the Calamiopsis leachiana, for which the, uh, the wilderness derives its name from, is fine here. It's this little cute little uh, pink plant that 
isn't really stick out until you kind of look at it more closely. And it's it's really beautiful. It blooms in the spring. Uh, there's a lot of famous uh, Darlingtonia or the, the cobra lilies. So these are the insect eating plants that uh, kind of curl up and just look, look like a cobra in these like fens along the trail. And so they're pretty cool. So if you're into rare plants and you want to get away and you want to see some really wild rivers, it's pretty tough to go wrong with the Illinois River Trail. It's definitely one of my favorite backpacking experiences, like overall bar none. That's awesome. I'm, I'm going out there in a few weeks. To I'm putting on just a little impromptu. It's like a 20-mile sort of lollipop loop run with maybe five or ten people. And we're so we're going to go to Pine Flat and then up this Florence Way Trail and back down the Illinois River Trail. So I'm real excited to uh, start dipping my toes into that northern end of the Calmeopsis. Boy, when you go up the Florence Way, you, I, I mean, you're, you're in amazing shape. So you're in better shape than I was. I was hauling one of those 50 pound packs oh, the Florence Way. Yes. And, and <laughs> so there's no shade either um, because, you know, a lot of this area uh, burned it. I should mention this was, you know, heavily impacted by the various wildfires, mm-hmm. but I just got, I just got baked. Like by the time I got up to the little spring at the top, I was just like, oh man, I'm, like the, this trail won. Like I did not win. That. <laughs> it's. Um, I think it's about three thousand foot climb in three miles. It's br- yeah. It's, it's totally brutal. So steep. Um. Also, I mean, for those who are interested in you know the history uh, of the area, that area, that Florence Way area, is um where the Biscuit Fire originally started. So it was originally the Florence Fire, and that's that area is right where it started. Wow. So um, you know, it became a five hundred thousand acre fire, but that's that's where it got its where it starts. So kind of maybe an infamous spot too. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't know that. That's pretty, that is pretty cool to know. Uh, all right. So we are on to your fourth pick, correct? Number four. So I'm going to talk about a place uh, near and dear to my heart. I mean, might not think of it as a wilderness, but Mount Shasta actually is mostly encompassed by wilderness. You know, the big 14,000 foot Alpine volcano in far Northern California. So if you'd climb it, like people often do from the Southwest side. Uh, It's very busy. It's in the wilderness technically, but there'll be hundreds and hundreds of people on a weekend all going up avalanche gulch, um, which is great. I mean, I, it's a, I love climbing that route as well. So (laughs) if you want a wilderness experience on the mountain um, and actually probably the easiest way to climb the summit, if you wanted to, it's on this uh, a route called clear Creek on the Southeast side. So you drive around through McLeod and then up some dirt roads around to the East and uh, I think my favorite part about the Clear Creek side of Mount Shasta is you hike in on a trail, you're in the woods initially, and then at about 9,000 feet, you kick into the, you know, above tree line into the Alpine. And there's this water that just comes right up out of the mountain. And it's it, it creates this creek that just bubbles up out of nowhere. And within like a foot and a half or two feet of the banks of this creek, that's just lush green meadow surrounded by volcanic rock nothing else is growing particularly except right along this you know spring-fed creek and so people will camp nearby there that's often like a base camp for people to climb the rest of the way which actually is not very technical people do it in you know hiking boots and you don't actually need crampons and ice axe so uh even just i've taken my my little kids we'll go backpacking and we'll just go to that clear creek camp at nine thousand feet and it's one of my favorite places anywhere Wow, that sounds fantastic. I mean, Mount Shasta, as far as like really scenic mountains, man, it's really hard to beat Mount Shasta. Like, um, so I'm curious about this area. Like, how can you drive all the way up to like a trailhead that accesses it mm-hmm. fairly? Close? You said you did it with your kids, so oh, yeah. it can't be that hard. Oh, this is super easy to get to. And this is uh, 
Yeah, I mean, you don't the, the road's not super good, but I mean, a passenger cars do it all the time. You know, it's maybe ten miles on dirt road. The trailhead's at seven thousand feet, and to hike in on it's a very good trail to go from that seven thousand foot trailhead to that nine thousand foot camp I was talking about. It's like mm-hmm. two and a half or three miles one way. Man, that's fantastic. So yeah, I mean, you don't have to climb the mountain at all. You know, like that's a super worthy, like the views camping there is tremendous. I think you have to have some guidelines on your tent, like winds can kick up. Like you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to be caught without a little bit more of a, a sturdy sort of tent or just sleep, you know, if you can just sleep out too, but like the winds can kick up at any time. Very cool. I'm putting, I'm putting that one on the list for sure. I need to get back down to the uh, Mount Shasta area. That, that's, that's an incredible area. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to take us home here. This is my fifth and final pick. And man, like you were saying, like just picking five was really difficult. And I almost hate to pick this one just because I love it so much. And I I almost (laughs) hate to put it out there more than I have to. But like if we're talking about this area, I can't not mention it. So my final pick is going to take us back to the Siskiyou Wilderness uh, to a place that's very close to my heart. And it is called Devil's Punch Bowl. Now, if that name sounds familiar, it's because there is a similarly unique place on the Oregon coast that we've actually talked about on this podcast before. But if you're going to have a contest between the two Devil's Punch Bowls, um, this place wins hands down. It's basically an alpine lake that it almost feels like it's been like scooped out of the mountains. Like if you had an ice cream scoop and then you saw a full mountain range and just like scooped out a little spot, um, that's Devil's Punch Bowl. It's just this little emerald spot and it's just surrounded by these you know silver cliffs on all sides it's just this giant rock cathedral that you have to rock walk into and hike into to find it again i think the crowds have uh gotten bigger since i was here um and it's not an ideal place to camp like there's no firewood there's only a few spots but you know it's if you want to get down there and see something really scenic um and be you know leave no trace um Devil's Punch Bowl is such an amazing place. One of my favorite stories, I actually, back in the day, I did put a tent on the shore. And so I went to sleep that night. And all of a sudden, it seemed like somebody like turned on the lights. Like I'm outdoors in the wilderness. And it was this bright light all of a sudden came on. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. So I got out and there was just this crazy eerie light over everything. And what had happened was the moon was full. Moonlight bounced off all that bare rock so much so that it, it like the whole area was almost glowing and it was just this really surreal experience because you have the ink black lake and then this eerie like silver light over just everything and um anyway so devil's punch bowl siski wilderness not an easy trip uh fairly steep but also not that hard to get there and um mm-hmm. yeah i have you, you must have been to devil's punch bowl yeah yeah i have i think you know like you're talking about the crowds and stuff you know so one one way you could do it is if you you had some time you know hiking in from like the clear creek trail so you could start somewhere else and camp along this amazing creek i'm sure there's good fishing in clear creek i don't i think it's pretty unobstructed to the klamath anyways you could do a day hike up to devil's punch bowls very easily i shouldn't say easily but it's not very far from that clear creek so if you want to avoid crowds at least at this point it's a lot less crowded camping down on clear creek and then hiking into devil's punch bowl than trying to go straight there and camp yeah, I think that's the way to do it. Like if you're going to make it part of a trip, that's definitely the way to do it. Um, mm-hmm. It's doable in like a, a day trip too. I think you know, oh, yeah. it's like ten. it's only like 10, 10 miles out and back or something mm-hmm. like that. That's right. It's actually, you know, it, I'm, again, I'm dating myself, but the first time I went up there, I think was with the old trail, which dropped down much lower and made for a much steeper climb up to the top. Right. Um, the newer trail is quite a bit easier, I think. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, so where where all right, take us home. Uh, we got one <laughs> one, one pick left. What you got? So again, I'm not going to stick with my, you know, I'm not just going to hit you with more Trinity albums or Marble Mountains. These are places that like are more popular and uh they're tremendous. But this place that our my fifth one is going to be in the South Warner Wilderness, which is basically in the exact far northeast corner of California, essentially on the Nevada border. Um this Warner, this South Warner mountains, uh, they're actually quite high. They top out almost at 10,000 feet. It's much more like in that fault block sort of, uh, desert basin range, uh, paradigm. So more, and there, there's more Aspens. There's, uh, it's more high desert, but the, when you get up into the higher altitudes, the, it, it's just a tremendously beautiful place. The views are endless. I mean, there's still forest, but it's very open. And then, uh, so I'm going to, pick this place called Patterson Lake, which I only have ever been to once. You know, it's a little bit of a drive. It's maybe three and a half or four hours from where I live to get out to this trailhead. Um, but it sits right below the highest peak in the South Warners. And it's just this, like on the West side, it slopes gradually, right? Like the Sierras do, like a lot of mountain ranges do. It's gradual, gradual. And then the East side of the South Warners, it think it, the whole range, it just drops off in these multiple thousands of feet cliffs stacked on top of each other. And there's, there's this Patterson Lake is just this amazing color of blue perched quite quite near the top and it's very big and you wouldn't think hey I'm in essentially this high desert you don't picture those lakes being out there and there there's some this is one that's a real gem and I'm sure people go there but I think it's pretty lightly traveled still gotcha what is the closest town there so like Hmm. if you're gonna go there like what 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 region are we talking about right Uh, if you've ever heard of a town called Alturas that's the closest town or to the north, Lakeview, Oregon is maybe an hour to the north, hour and a half to the north. Gotcha. So it's re- you really have that like kind of high desert feel out there. Uh huh. It is. It's to me, it's total diamond in the rough. I've done some backcountry ski trips out there. I mean, it's just a place no one go thinks to go. But for trails and backcountry, you know, trips, it's uh, it's pretty rad. I'm gonna I'm gonna hopefully have a permit to do some guided fast packing trips out there. If not this year, then next well very cool that's that's actually a great way to end the podcast with this place that i've never even heard of um so um i appreciate you taking some time to uh talk through the idea of fast packing what it brings to the table and the business that you are going to offer this coming summer um and then talk about my favorite place on earth the southern oregon and northern california wilderness areas so thanks so much for taking the time man hey thanks a lot for having me this is super fun i uh, i like you I, I can talk about this stuff forever so uh hopefully you can get back down here soon all right sounds like a plan take it easy thanks That's all the time we have for this episode of the Explore Oregon podcast. We hope you learned a little more about this new outdoor pursuit and maybe got an idea or two for a future adventure. If you like what you heard, make sure to check out previous episodes at statesomejournal.com explore. You can also find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. We'd like to thank our sponsor, the American Forest Resource Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for the environment, for our economy, and for our future. Learn more at amforest.org. Thanks for listening.